Welcome to Teach 'em Up, the podcast about teaching and learning. Today is the day after Thanksgiving, and because it's the day after Thanksgiving, I want to start by wishing everybody a very happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving's my favorite holiday um, of all the holidays for a bunch of reasons. Um, primarily, it's my favorite holiday because it involves being thankful and having gratitude and being grateful for the wonderful things that we have in our lives. And the reason that that makes it my favorite holiday is that being grateful both makes you a better person, and it also makes you a healthier, longer-living person. People who are able to think about positive things in their lives tend to live happier, uh, more productive lives. They also tend to live longer and have fewer health complications. So being thankful and thinking about good things in your life, both during this season and during the rest of the year, are really, really good for you. The second reason that I really like Thanksgiving is Thanksgiving is a holiday for everyone. As somebody whose parents came to the U.S. uh, as immigrants, Thanksgiving is a holiday that feels like everything that's good about the U.S. Uh, If you live in the United States and you can be thankful, Thanksgiving is a holiday for you. It doesn't matter about religion or ethnic background or any kind of other history. It's just about gathering with people that you love and sharing a good meal together and thinking about things that are good for you and that you are happy about. Finally, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday because there's no commercial part to it. Uh, And I think that's going to become especially obvious today, Um, but I really like not buying stuff. And I love that there's no social pressure to have gifts or eggs filled with candy or uh, any other kind of thing. Um... It's about eating, which I would usually do every day anyway, and uh, about being with people that you love and thinking about things that are good. And so I hope that you are able to take some time to think about all of the wonderful things in your life, the gorgeous location that you live, the people who are close to you, um, all the blessings that you have in your life, and are able to give thanks for those things and be grateful for what is good. So... As a Thanksgiving gift to myself, today we get to talk to uh, the teacher that I am most thankful for, my absolute favorite teacher in the world. Um, Today we are talking to a first grade teacher from Gledwin Elementary School, Melissa Williams. (laughs) Melissa, what's good? Hey, well, that fabulous introduction was good. Thank you. You're very welcome. Um, So you teach first grade at Glenwood Elementary in San Rafael. Uh, Today, we are going to be talking primarily about the balance between socializing and socialization of kids and academics. Mm -hmm. And in first grade, you get that opportunity a lot because you are both developing them who they are going to be as human beings and giving them the absolute necessity-based skills of how to read and how to become numerate and process numbers, uh, which is really what all teachers are doing. We're all doing socialization of people and developing academic skills, but in first grade, it feels like it's really where the rubber meets the road, and you're doing the base foundation of all of that. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Cool. Um, So with that, can you give us uh, a little intro as to how you got into teaching and uh, why you've stuck with it? Oh, okay. Um, Well, I started out... Um, I don't know. I may be in middle school. 
I was always a swimmer. I was on the swim team for most of my life. And in middle school, I tried out to be um, an aide, like to to an instructor for swim lessons. And I loved it so much that I followed through and then eventually became the instructor for swim lessons in my hometown. And I started realizing that I liked working with kids. I worked in camps. But when I went to college and chose my major, I really loved science and I loved biology. So I tried to follow that route. I thought maybe I might be a doctor or a vet. And pretty soon, right after I had to take organic chemistry and did really terribly, it weeded me out. Or- organic chemistry is awful. It's, uh, it is. And it did its job. It weeded me out. I realized it's I not s- what I want to do. I say that as somebody who loves science. <laughs> yes. Ochem is the worst. It was, it was kind of the worst. Um, but it made me reflect on what I really valued and what I wanted to do. And I was thinking back to my high school, junior high years when I really loved working with children. So I switched my major. I became a human development major and had a lot of volunteer hours that I needed to do in preschools and schools and just sort of fell in love with what everybody, it just seemed that the teachers were having such a good time. They were stressed out, but they were we are <laughs> we are yeah. but they were smiling and there was joy uh-huh. even through the stress yeah. so that wasn't something i was seeing you know in my parents careers or just other people around me so i switched majors um be- went human develop graduated with a human development major and um, then went to get my teaching credential i started my first 2 years teaching kindergarten and first grade in dixon california and when we, um, you and I moved down to the Bay Area, I moved down to San Rafael. I've been working in the San Rafael City School District ever since with teaching first grade and kindergarten. Nice. Yeah. And the you and I there is uh, yes. because we are married to each other. Yes. Um, yeah. And the hometown that you uh, grew up in, what town was that? Oh, as a child? Yeah. Paradise. Paradise. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's the reaction I usually get. Yeah. <laughs> no. That's kind of an inside joke for us um, because <laughs> Paradise burned down a year ago and uh, it's a classic like, oh, oh, as yes. you tell somebody that you're from Paradise and they process like, that sounds nice. Oh, no, I know that name already. Yeah. Well, prior to 2018, anytime that you said you were from Paradise, People always thought of some tropical island, like I like I meant Hawaii. Uh-huh. Um, and I had to explain, no, 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 it's this no, town. It's a in- small town in the foothills of Northern California. <laughs> exactly. And now you get to see a different t- sort of reaction when you mention paradise. So. Yeah, which is funny in the darkest possible in way. In a terrible way. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Yeah. On that positive note, um, let's jump in. So as a first grade teacher, you have this balance between academics mm-hmm. and socialization of human beings. Yes. So let's start with how do you balance those things? Which is more important? Um, is there a more important? And how do you enforce that like both are important things that you're trying to work with kids on? Um, well, I feel like my personal philosophy and what I share with parents from day one is that I just want to foster a love of learning. That's my job mm-hmm. as their first grade teacher. And I want my students to become the best possible versions of themselves. And usually that means trying to develop kindness, empathy, compassion for others. 
you know, it really doesn't matter if you know five plus five on the top of your head. If Although you're, it'd be helpful. It's helpful. But if you're not a kind person and can't relate with your peers, mm-hmm. you will not get very far. Yeah. So, you know, there is a balance. I am, I am a first grade teacher. I teach the standards and those are my expectations for the kids. But what I, my personal goal for all of my students is to help them reach their potential and to help them along their journey to become kind, compassionate people in the world who can do wonderful, wonderful things and will change the world in a positive way. Awesome. So let's start there. Okay. How do you socialize a six-year-old? How do you train them or how do you train 24 six-year-olds to be productive, helpful, kind, empathetic members (laughs) of society? Well, I would say I am one in a line of people who are doing this job really of socializing our youth, right? Starting with parents and caregivers, whoever's been there Uh in the beginning, but... I feel like for kin, and I'll speak for kindergarten also. Yep. Um, a lot of times, it's the first time that a student is in a bigger community of children, mm-hmm. and the behavior expectations when you are in a bigger community feel it's they're different than yep. when you are in a small preschool or just when you're at home relating with your parents or your siblings or your grandparents or caregiver, whoever it is. So a lot of the expectations are around how you manage being in a big group. Mm-hmm. So if you whittle that down to the most fundamental aspects, a lot of it is how do you stand in a line, uh-huh. right? How do you get into that line in an appropriate way so that you can go somewhere? Physical spacing between people. You're not talking because you have to get somewhere. I mean, just all the little... So you're not like all up in everybody's personal space bubble? Yes, and it's amazing how much of the year is devoted to learning how big your space bubble is Uh your personal space yeah so um transitioning in and out of a room Uh for instance you know kids want to go to the bathroom and when they come back in they're really excited to tell us the puddle that they jumped in or the bird that they saw or they want to know what they missed yep and to you know just the expectation is that when you enter a room you're not normally announcing everything that you've done i saw a cool bird (laughs) Yes. I mean, there's a time and a place for that. Yeah. Um, Really, you're the right person to tell when you see a cool bird. (laughs) Yeah, I am. Yeah, you do love birds. I do love birds. (laughs) Tell me all the times that you see cool birds. But um, yes, just appropriate behavior in a big community setting. So like I said, um, getting into a line, transitioning, I would say how to ask for things in Mm -hmm. an appropriate way and to get a positive response Mm -hmm. from the person that you're asking. So the tone in which you're asking someone the right word, you know, the words you can ask in an, any different variety of ways uh-huh. and get different variety of responses from people. So learning how to navigate that, how to problem solve when two people want the same thing. What do you do? Because grabbing them away is probably going to get you in trouble and it's not going to get you what you want. Right. So how do you navigate all your feelings uh, solving problems. It's, I, I would say, a huge chunk of my day. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's the fun that. thing about being married to a, a teacher is I teach ninth grade, you teach first grade, uh-huh. and then we come home and we share like the exact same problems. <laughs> yes. It's like, ah, my students just 
could not stop interrupting and uh-huh. uh, using the wrong tone of voice when asking a question. Like, it's about phrasing, guys. Yep. If you're asking for a college letter of recommendation <laughs> as a senior, yes. uh, you want to come in with like, hey, Mr. Williams, I just wanted to let you know you were just one of my favorite teachers <laughs> and you made such a positive impact in my life. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to write me this letter of recommendation for college because you've just inspired me so much. Yes. Uh, and like, then that's going to be like, and of course, I would love to. And I will write you such a good letter. Uh, as opposed to like, so <laughs> my mom told me that I had to get a letter of recommendation. And do you want to do that? Yes. No, I, I don't really. Yes. I mean, I'm willing to, but I don't really want to based on the way that you asked. Yeah. I, I mean, the world is, you. It, yes, just nav- navigating that. And maybe you've had that ex- that exposure at home, and maybe you haven't. Uh-huh. And you're somewhere on the spectrum of mastering that skill in every little skill set. So I'm just there to help you along your journey. Right. And I think that's something that all good teachers recognize, yes. is that it is a progression of skills, and we're <laughs> all going to fail at it a number of times, and finding the right tone yes. uh, continues to be challenging, even in interactions with adults. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but if we can give them a good foundation and help them understand like the value of tone and how to phrase things, uh, then we can get along much better as a positive society. <laughs> That's the hope. That is the hope. That's our goal. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be lovely if we could get there. <laughs> I agreed. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's kind of in terms of socialization, mm-hmm. um, where you focus. So what's the next component around building up positive first graders? Um, oh boy. I mean, I would say sharing my enthusiasm and love for learning uh-huh. and trying to, um, not create, but foster the spark. I mean, kids are interested in any variety of things. And so really digging deep and finding out what each student, what's going to be that carrot mm-hmm. that will, um, prom- I mean, eventually you want kids to be curious and want to learn on their own, but sometimes you need some motivation yeah. to do that. So finding for each kid, what is a motive? I mean, some kids are really motivated by positive things, trying to earn things, uh-huh. whereas other students respond more to just enthusiasm from a teacher whereas another kid it might be the threat of a consequence or having something taken away Uh that is really going to help them make a better choice yep so finding what that is for each kid Mm -hmm. each year right and i'm sure you're doing the same thing for your 155 students right i've only got to do it for 23 this year but it changes and just trying to go with them but really support be a scaffold, be a support for them so that eventually it is uh, students wanting to learn, being joyful in whatever their passion is because of an intrinsic want and value for and that, that. And that seems one of the ways that elementary school is really dialed and one of the things that they do really well is like understanding who each and every kid is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I noticed that because you have a small classroom environment, mm-hmm. you know, one teacher and 24 different students. Yep. Um, you really get to know who they are as people. Yes. And so building that kind of positive relationship with each kid then enables you to figure out like, ah, for this particular kid, 
you know, you do this and that works and then you try this for reading and yeah. their reading level is right here yes. and their math level is right here. So the next step for them is going to be this, this, this. Um, I mean, we just had conference week for uh, <laughs> our two biological kids who are in school yes. uh, of three. And um, that was one of the things that really came across in talking to their teachers mm-hmm. is that their teachers just had such a clear idea of who they were as people, yes, like who our kids are as people, both, mm-hmm. and um, like where they are academically right now, mm-hmm. and then what their next steps are going to be in terms of developing as people and developing as students um, and developing academically. So yeah. it was really cool to see, like, oh, here's where her writing is right now, and so her next step is going to be this, 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 and here's where his math piece is, and so he's going to keep working on this. Yes. And here's where we are in science. Like it was just a really cool looking at, and and the nice part is that both of our conferences had both an academic component and a social who the person is component. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really got a feel for academically. Here's where they are in reading, in writing, in mm-hmm. math, in science, in history, in PE, and then socially. Here's how they collaborate. Here's how the kid is able to communicate. Here's how they're solving problems and thinking critically. Yep. Here's where they're showing really good character. Here's their cultural understanding. Yes. Um, here's their conscientious learning and how they really know the rules of school. And so that seems like something that elementary schools are especially good at because you're able to create that small classroom environment. And we have the luxury of more hours right. with them yeah. per day. And one classroom, kids aren't normal. I mean, we're transitioning to different activities, but we've got like this one cohort uh-huh. and we're with each other and we're not really mixing too much. So it gives you the time. To really get to know every single kid individually. I mean, it takes effort. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. You don't um, just wander in and uh, spend five hours scrolling through your phone. No, I don't do that. And magically you know everything about every kid. Yeah. Huh. It's yes. weird. Um, but you're, it's the luxury of being given the time and the space to develop that. Totally. That relationship. Nice. Um, so one of the things we mentioned was like knowing what school is, because I feel like elementary school, well, school generally kind of has like a hidden curriculum. There's some of it that's like, how do you play the game of school? Mm -hmm. There are different expectations in a school setting than there are maybe in your home setting. Uh Uh-huh. Um, because it's a formalized environment. Yes. Um, and I got to imagine you mentioned like learning how to stand in a line and how to respect <laughs> people's personal space bubbles. Yes. Um, I know that you talk a lot about like consent language. Yep. Yes. Which sometimes weirds people out because there's like, whoa, they're only six. No. Oh, um, yeah. But can you talk a little bit about how you use consent stuff? Oh yeah. Well, um, and in that specific example, I remember talking. I remember sharing this story with you. Yeah. Um, that there were a couple students that came to me during recess and someone was poking, touching, I don't know what they were doing, like on the shoulder. Yeah. And another student was saying stop, but the second student wasn't hearing it and wasn't stopping. Mm-hmm. And so classic um, playground. Yeah, I mean it, yes, both kids have an you know, something that they want to do. Yeah. And someone was saying stop. So our conversation was after hearing both sides of the story was that stop means stop and it it, no matter what what you're doing no is no Mm -hmm. and stop is stop and even if it is fun for you it feels like a game you're only touching them on the shoulder it's making someone else uncomfortable for whatever reason Uh and they're telling you to stop so um it's not 
a critique on you as a person. It is just a please stop this behavior and you have to listen. Yeah. No matter what. Yeah. So uh, find a way to be okay with that. If that's walking away, if that's finding some, another game to play, um, working it out together or needing an adult to go help you through those emotions. But no is no and stop is stop. And using that language early on, yeah. I think hopefully the hope is that later on, you know, when students are older and need to use that word in a more serious setting, that there's lots of practice and that stop means stop and no means no. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a very age appropriate uh, introduction. Yes. So like you have control of your body uh-huh. and like consent is based on your words and actions. And yep. then you must listen to other people's words and actions. Even if, even if someone, it seems like they've changed their mind. Right. And that, that happens a lot. I mean, right, right, right. kindergarten and first graders are really yeah. into the game. And then all of a sudden they're changing their mind for yeah. maybe they're uncomfortable. Maybe they just don't feel like playing it. Maybe uh-huh. they saw a friend and like, you see something better yeah. and you want to go play over there. <laughs> you saw a cool bird. <laughs> I want to go look at that cool bird now. Look. Um, so now, I mean, there are all sorts of feelings that come up. So uh-huh. figuring out how to navigate those, it's, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to teach that. But so. that's part of being a good human being. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And living in our society. Yep. Cool. Um, we also mentioned like behavior expectations through the school environment mm-hmm. um, and how there are kind of like a hidden expectation or like hidden rules yes. about being in different places. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, different rules for churches, different rules for supermarkets, and yep. obviously different rules for schools. Yes. Um, so how do you go about kind of like teaching students those different expectations in different places? Well, you know, in in the school setting, there are many different... You've got your outside playground time, mm-hmm. which is totally different than when you're inside mm-hmm. with a teacher in the classroom setting or when you walk to the office or when you're in the library class or music class or PE. So each teacher has their individual expectations and then each class setting has their own expectations. And I know that our um, office staff... Really, she, the one thing that she says is that when kids come to her in the office, she really loves to be greeted. Mm-hmm. A, hello, how are you? My finger's bleeding and I need your help. But <laughs> <laughs> um, some sort of... Harsh, harsh example. Yeah, it's a harsh example. But some sort of, <laughs> hello, also, can you call home? Because I, I forgot something. Whatever it is. <laughs> Maybe good, not the... <laughs> good morning. How are you? I've lost consciousness. Can you please call 911? Okay, so that's bad. But, you know, to, when you walk into a room to yeah, yeah, yeah. to greet yeah. people or when you're in the library, it is okay to talk, uh-huh. but you're using hushed tones. And I feel like a lot of that is modeling. So as a grown-up, when I enter a room and I'm interacting with whoever the grown-up is that's that's teaching, then we're modeling and scaffolding the correct behavior or whisper, uh-huh. talking, or tiptoeing around in the hallway so that we don't disrupt the other classes. So learning hallway behavior, I mean, expectations, it's just. Yeah. I mean, it's just part of being a polite human being. Mm -hmm. And that continues through high school. (laughs) Um, I feel like I do a lot of like snarky responses to uh, poor teenagers Mm -hmm. who walk in the room and are like, where's the tape? Yes. Like, good morning. (laughs) Yes. How are you? Huh? How are you this morning? (laughs) Uh, I'm fine. Where's the tape? Yes. Uh, would you like to greet me? <laughs> oh. Hey, how are you? 
I'm great. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. What can I do for you? Mm-hmm. Do you know where the <laughs> tape is? Yes, I do. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, cool. So, <laughs> good good news, bad news. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah. Uh, and we continue to try to find the most positive way possible to help students make progress uh, and become the best people they can. We try. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, socialization, obviously, a huge part of first grade. Uh, another thing that I know that you do really, really well is taking students who are struggling with behavior pieces mm-hmm. and helping redirect them in the most positive way possible. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you redirect a student and what redirection is um, as in terms of like a classroom management strategy? Um, it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like um, if a student is one, you want the student to change a certain behavior whether it is an attitude or, I don't know, um, they're focusing or lack of focus or maybe they're physically in a spot. They keep getting up to go to the back of the room and you really want to change that behavior. Um, It's just, I feel like it, redirection falls under a broader umbrella of behavior management. Uh And I feel like each teacher has a select I don't, hundreds of strategies that they use yeah. at different times in different parts of the day to try to manage behaviors of uh-huh. 23, 24, 28 individuals in your classroom. So I feel like redirecting is just finding a way to um, alter the path of whatever the behavior is uh-huh. into what you would like it to be. Right. Um, in first grade, I feel like, or in my classroom, I feel like my first stop uh, first strategy is almost an over-the-top enthusiasm uh-huh. from me about the subject. And I feel like by halfway through the year, my, when I'm, I'm notorious for pulling out a book and gasping, this, I, I have to share this with you because this might be my favorite book of all time. And I just really want to share this with you. And by halfway through the year, the kids are like, but you have 50 favorites because every time, and it really truly is one of my favorite books. Right. And I'd love to share this experience with you. So I feel like my attitude, um, and that seems really like, like minimal, but uh-huh. minimalistic, but my attitude towards something or my faked enthusiasm towards something can really help alter a few kids yeah i mean it's it's tough to scoff at something that somebody says like is so good (laughs) yes and we can talk about you know their opinions afterwards or whatever it is so i feel like my enthusiasm for a subject or for a book or for this reading strategy it's really going to help you Mm -hmm. um i feel like that's probably the first thing that i try yeah and generally it catches a few and, and some kids it won't catch them on a bad day. Well, and practically, you probably wouldn't be using that reading strategy if you didn't think it was effective. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Um, I would say another strategy I use a lot in the younger grades is um, pointing out, uh, we use the terms expected and unexpected behaviors. Mm-hmm. So in a certain setting, your expected behavior is like in the library. You would have a softer voice. You can talk, but you're not running around the space and then an unexpected behavior is something that would you would not feel is appropriate for that setting fireworks yeah yeah 
or yelling or chanting, you oh, know, okay. two, four, six, eight, like, yeah, all right. you know, that makes more sense. That's more of a soccer field strategy. Exactly. Yeah, it's expected it. on, on a, in a different setting, yeah. but it's unexpected here uh-huh. versus labeling something as bad yeah, yeah. and good. So to choose, uh, usually a student, a neighboring student. So if I have one student who's having difficulty finding a student that is showing an expected behavior mm-hmm. And normally you got to dedicate, you know, at least a few minutes because you're going to go around the room and, get, and hit everybody. But mm-hmm. um, if you're noticing someone who's having the wiggles on the carpet and just can't get their body into a comfortable spot, mm-hmm. I might say that, Nick, thank you so much for for sitting with your hands together in your lap. I can tell that you're really trying to, oh, wow. And Sally, you're really making eye contact with me. And thank you for doing that. And normally you'll get you'll pick up a few other students who are also wanting some recognition for an expected behavior and then you can usually pull them back in you're welcome i'm really good at sitting still yes thank you yeah my hands are totally to myself right now (laughs) yes yeah yeah but then it's you know moving the praise isn't up from an outcome of some work that they've done but for Uh the effort that they've really put in towards Uh this expected behavior this you know how they're how they're meant what Uh the expectation is of them so like praising a neighbor it's like if you notice Jack is having a tough time sitting still, you'll praise the kid next to Jack mm-hmm. for really doing a good job sitting mm-hmm. still. And then Jack will hear that and say like, oh, that's what's being expected. And we'll start trying to mimic that behavior. Yeah. And then you can pull. And I know praise is a controversial, you know, I'm not. Um, but giving some po- some positive recognition for the effort that they're putting in. Uh-huh. But yes, the idea is that that finally Jack in this scenario would do something has has an effort would notice and then something that I can recognize also mm-hmm. his, his effort um, to make a change in this behavior which tends to work psychologically mm-hmm. um, people don't tend to like being told that they're doing the wrong thing yeah uh, but if you give them the chance to make the right choice then they do tend to do that yes um, yeah. and that goes for all ages like <laughs> yes. nobody really likes to be told like hey you're screwing up again <laughs> yeah well yeah um, um yeah you want to you know it's much easier to be told like wow i really appreciate when so-and-so is doing xyz and mm-hmm. you're like well i can do that exactly that's the idea is that then they and then they want to do it and they want to change and then you can acknowledge it nice um i would say something else that i use quite often is uh proximity is moving my body closer mm-hmm to a student who might have be having trouble sitting in their seat or focusing. Uh-huh. So I feel like never am I really sitting or standing in front of the classroom unless I'm reading a book, but uh-huh. I'm usually moving around even when kids are on the carpet and it would seem that it would be appropriate to be in the front. I am on the floor listening, moving around, um, listening to conversations when kids are talking and chatting with each other mm-hmm. and moving closer to someone who might need um, some redirection help, uh-huh. uh, to some focus help, and oftentimes, yeah, having someone there who's probably going to call you out yep. on your behavior, just having them close to you generally. I mean, we've all had that, that authority figure, right, yeah, that yeah. comes by, and then you kind of... Hangs out right by you, and yeah. you're like, oh, I should do the right Shape thing. Shape up a little yeah. bit, <sighs> and then you take a breath when they leave. And uh-huh. so that's the idea, is if I'm close, maybe you'll, you'll try that. Uh-huh. Um... Yeah, I mean, it's like that teacher desk is one of the funniest things to me. Yes. Because, like, I theoretically have one. Yes. I can't remember the last, like, well, I sit down at it before school and after school uh-huh. to bang some grading out. Yep. Um, 
but like during class there's never a time when i'm ever to able to actually sit down at the stool mm-hmm. um and like sit down at my teacher desk yeah and like i know that you have a desk in your classroom i do but it's also like when on earth are you ever at that desk when i'm emailing when you're emailing parents <laughs> yes that's after school yes or at lunchtime that's when i'm yeah. sitting down yeah mm-hmm. um and that's about it yeah. yeah yeah otherwise you're just moving around right finding who needs you and uh helping them by being close to them yeah and th- i mean then that could be just giving someone a boost in confidence or giving mm-hmm. someone a partner and so it's not always my proximity because of a misbehavior mm-hmm. um but just getting around to each kid and developing that relationship it yeah. takes movement and time yeah spent with kids so okay so redirecting strategy number one was yeah. enthusiasm mm-hmm. redirecting strategy number two was praise of good choices uh-huh um redirection strategy number three is proximity yep number four um something that i do especially when you know that you have a student who you can tell right the first thing in the morning when they come in that something's happened in the morning or they're gonna have they're having a bad day Uh or it's it's gonna take a lot of effort for me to just kind of change that perspective on the day for whatever happened right so and especially at the elementary level when they come in and they're having a bad day you've got them for that bad day for the next six plus hours. They do. Uh-huh. And I mean, who knows what, what the bad day was. It right. could be like on the spectrum of of things. Yeah. I mean, we know. We have small children. We that, do. Yep. The morning is hard. The morning is really hard. Yeah. So um, you can kind of tell when it's... And sometimes you can't tell, but some, some of the times you can tell when someone's having a hard day mm-hmm. and they're going to have a hard time adjusting. Mm-hmm. And I feel like... In those at those times, I can you know have this like it seems like a secret private conversation with someone where I can let them in on the okay. So here's what's going to happen, and when this happens, can you be my helper and can you come up and show? Oh. So they do get to come up and be in front or not, but they they're kind of thinking, feeling like they're the helper and they've got this important task, no matter what it is. Yeah. Um, They've got the secret special pre-information. They do. And yeah. whether, and that could be just, and then you're going to take this paper to the office because uh-huh. they'll need a, a, a motion. They need a break. Yep. Um, whatever it is, but they feel, A, they have to pay attention so that they know when their cue is uh-huh. going to happen. If you've previewed a lesson for them, then they've already thought about it. And then when I'm saying it, in the moment and maybe they're having a hard time focusing they've actually already thought about it mm-hmm. so this is their second chance at yep. recapturing so sometimes that strategy will work just trying to get them in on the secret on the lesson having an in, having an inside anything with someone just builds a deeper um, relationship and then you feel more confident you feel more comfortable absolutely talking and hopefully participating in the day's activities nice Okay, is there a fifth redirection strategy? <laughs> um, uh, yes, and I feel like this, I we really quite mastered this. I really quite mastered this when I had children of my own and I had toddlers uh-huh. and it was to keep it simple, yep. to keep whatever it is. If it, if some students, you know, you do all these things and it's just not working, yeah. having an off day, having an off moment and to keep whatever it is that you're asking them to do, whether it is to stop talking or interrupting keeping it at a simple one to two sentences Uh as adults we want to and teachers we want to over explain and we want to tell you why yes why why i'm expecting this from you Uh um but if you really pare it down and keep it 
to one to two sentences, the expectation in the moment. Yeah. Um, it really, it helps kids to just focus on the behavior that, that is being asked. And later when you're, you know, later when they're calm or when they're focused, you can come back and have that, that why explanation. Why uh-huh. do you know why I was asking you to not interrupt me? Um, but in the moment, if it's, if you're having a hard time keeping it simple, one to two sentences, and then like a simple shut up, Melissa. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> no 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 oh okay not that but um but yeah keeping it simple yeah and walking away and Uh or stopping the conversation there Uh uh-huh giving some time for reflection and i think that is a really good teaching strategy Mm -hmm. is using consistent language and keeping it simple yeah um i was talking about this with a english language development teacher Mm -hmm. just around like how you explain things using total physical response yes and use the same prompting over and over again like i say you say Mm -hmm. yes i say you say um or like in english and then they'll try it in english and then you say it like in english Mm mm-hmm uh, and so you've got like the sentence starters and you've got the sentence stems and you've got like the word wall so that they have all the tools to try it in English. Uh-huh. I mean, obviously, the first thing is you have to create a safe classroom environment yes. where they feel willing <laughs> to take that risk. Uh-huh. But then the next piece is like not explaining. Could you please repeat that for me? Mm-hmm. But this time in English. Yes. Like you've used the same like same idea, but you've taken four times longer. Yes. Uh, so just getting into like the quick Here's what I want. Here's what I want. Even yep. if it's not perfect grammar, mm-hmm. it sends the message real fast. It does. Um, so, I mean, and I felt like that was a real useful tool. I mean, take it outside of teaching, like uh-huh. to our own children. Yes. Um, when there is a sibling squabble or hitting or whatever it was that we were dealing with, uh-huh. you know, kids are really only going to listen to probably the first 10 seconds yep. of that, whatever explanation it is. Mm-hmm. And so... If the first 10, te- 10 seconds include what what they need to change and what they need right. to reflect on or whatever it is. Be then, kind. Yes. No hitting. <laughs> then you're probably going to get more reflection and more of the more of an attitude or of a, ch- a behavior change uh-huh. than if you have that long drawn out explanation. Right. When you hit somebody, <laughs> it hurts them physically and also sends an emotional message <laughs> that it might be painful and that you're excluding them. Yes. So in the future, if you could please keep your hands to yourself and avoid hitting other people, I think they would be more likely to be your <laughs> friends and want to spend more time around you. Yes. Like, um, and that's... Right. You said the same thing. It just took way longer and nobody paid attention. Yeah. And that's there's a there's a time and a place for that explanation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After the fact. After, not in the moment. Explaining why the background. Yep. Awesome. Um, so simplicity is important for redirection. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about number six? Um, I would say, so I utilize something in my classroom, um, oftentimes during transitions to kind of help kids with their behavior. And it comes from, I was, uh, project glad okay. trained and that stands for uh, guided language acquisition design, okay. something that my district went through and utilizing student scouts. So I, I have my student of the day. It's the person who passes out the papers and they're the line leader and they just kind of help me generally throughout the day. Mm-hmm. But I will ask them to be a scout and they have a special chair that is the scout chair. And a lot of times if students are 
transitioning from table group to carpet, or if the phone rings and I have to get up and walk across the room, or a teacher comes in and needs has a question or whatever it is, I can sometimes utilize another student to be my eyes and ears. Mm-hmm. And I will often out loud, you know, I really need you to to watch the kid, watch the class and really if there's if there's someone who's making really great choices, could you tell me who that is? Mm-hmm. I'd love for you to look. And I feel like students are generally um, going to try a little bit harder when it's their peers yep. that are looking. Um, and they'll still try when I'm doing it, but it kind of mixes it up. Whereas mm-hmm. the person who is expecting the behavior is another student in the class and uh-huh. who's watching. And the students can choose one person. And we have a, a whole um, system-wide behavior management where the kids get golden tickets and it's it's school-wide so they can give out a golden ticket or they could give a bear to our class bear jar and where we earn a party if everybody in the classroom is doing a great job so utilizing other students to help in the recognizing good choices and and good behavior expectation nice so i really love using scout nice it's wonderful yeah great and it seems like through all these strategies, there's kind of like a big overarching theme. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is it about redirecting? Like what's the overarching theme that makes it effective? And I would say it is giving choice, giving students um, a choice. And it's usually a limited choice. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is I, the choice between you could behave like this and then here's what's going to happen. Or you could try this. And then this is what's going to happen. What uh-huh. is your choice? Yeah. And so giving students the opportunity to, and some kids, I mean, most of the time kids are going to make the choice that you want them to, uh-huh. that you're kind of forcing them to. And sometimes they won't. They're just not in a space where they, they do not want to do what you're going to do. And so they are choosing to need some time away from uh-huh. the group and maybe go sit at a table and work at a table group rather than a, with partners. Or maybe they're making the choice to stay in and have a conversation with me uh-huh. at recess for the first few minutes rather than going straight out to recess. So giving them a choice yeah. in what you want to do. And it could be, do you want to work over here at a table or do you want to grab a clipboard and work down here? Uh-huh. I mean, for me, it doesn't matter because I'm hoping that the outcome is the same. You're right. thinking yeah, and you're doing the work and it really doesn't matter to me where it is. Right. Um, so giving them a choice so that they feel like they have ownership of their learning yeah um for me like i kind of call this the illusion of choice (laughs) um because at the end of the day i want you to do what i want you to do Uh but by giving you some options within what i want you to do (laughs) then you get to decide which one of those you pursue and then people generally are happier yep and more likely to feel like they're doing it on their own accord Uh so with our biological kids it's like okay guys for lunch today would you like uh bell peppers or broccoli or carrots. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's like, ooh, which of those three things do I want? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go with bell peppers today. When really like, all we cared about was the vegetable. Yeah, right? just yeah. eat a vegetable. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Um, but instead of like, you're going to eat the vegetable. Yep. Uh, if you give the illusion of choice and say like, which of these three vegetables do you want? Mm-hmm. Um, or I'll give you all three. Oh, you only ate two of them. Darn. Like, okay, I still got you to eat two vegetables. Ha ha. (laughs) Got you again. Yep. Um, Or academically, it would be like, you know, we are learning about forces of impact, 
and projectile motion. Mm -hmm. Um, But the choice is which sports action, you can choose literally any sports action you want Mm -hmm. to analyze. My only requirements is there's some kind of contact and something leaves the ground. Yeah. So if you want to get funky and do like ping pong, yep. um, go nuts. Great. Like it doesn't matter to me. Uh-huh. Uh, so there's like, and that one, there, there actually is a reasonably legit choice. Uh, like be creative with it. Mm-hmm. But you have the freedom as long as something leaves the ground and there's a force like yes yep. analyze that yes <laughs> and so you've got that illusion of choice we're all learning about the same stuff but you get control of how you want to learn it yeah and i mean that's what we would want from our students moving forward into the into the adult world right right is to navigate the choice make good choices uh-huh. make good choices um but also be critical and thinking and be able to apply what you're learning to different situations and they can do that when they have a lot of choice and how they want to learn it. I feel like it applies better. Nice. So. Cool. Um, one last social development thing uh, before we move into academics uh-huh. that I know you do in your classroom is your bucket filling system. Oh, yes. Yeah. Could you just explain what a bucket filling system is and where it comes from and how it influences your students' behavior? Um, yes, it comes from, the idea comes from a children's book on a guide to happiness for mm-hmm. children. Have you filled a bucket today? And there there are quite a few books in a series that you can read. And um, But it's basically the premise is that every person on earth carries an, indi- an invisible bucket with them okay. everywhere you go. And throughout the day, you are either filling up your bucket or it's being emptied. And when you have a full bucket, it holds all your feelings about yourself. And when it is full, you are you have these wonderful, confident feelings about yourself. And when your bucket is empty, you're not feeling so great about yourself. So lower self-confidence. Um, maybe your behaviors will reflect that, of your feeling, your perspective on yourself. So our goal in life is to have a full bucket yep. and to help others to fill their buckets. And the book goes on to say that um, the only way that you can fill your own bucket is by filling someone else's bucket. You can't actually just kind of shove stuff in your bucket and make yourself feel good. Right. But it's these acts of kindness that you do for other people that actually fill up your own bucket as well. Uh-huh. So you can be a bucket filler or a bucket dipper. And, you know, I read this story and there are lots of scenarios that we talk about. What is what is this action? Um, sharing your pencil with a friend. Is that bucket filling or is it bucket dipping? Filling. Yeah, you're right. Yes. Filling. Um, so in my classroom, I actually make the book and the ideas tangible where each student has a bucket. And it's like I keep all the buckets in um, one of those over-the-door shoe holders. Uh-huh. And with a lot of little pot, like Yeah, pockets. all the little pockets. Yep. And I have students' pictures there because we're not really able to read all the names. Yet. In the, yet. And they've got their picture, and we have little pom-poms. Uh-huh. And it's a system that sort of manages itself. All I do is really introduce it, and then the kids come over, and when they have done something kind for someone else, they can go put a pom-pom in someone else's bucket, and then they also put a pom-pom, like in, a little fuzzy, in their own, in their own bucket. Uh-huh. And that's the idea. Just to make the idea a little more physical and tangible, that you when you do things that are kind you are filling a bucket and everybody wants this bucket full of colorful pom-poms uh-huh. you just sort of want it full yeah and um once it's full 
I kind of I put a sticker on the bucket. I empty your bucket, which you wouldn't really do a normal. So so you're the bucket dipper. <laughs> I know. Um, I do do it when they're not watching, but so that you can keep filling it up with pom poms, or someone else can. Nice. So that the idea is to just sort of help you be kind and be kind to others and by doing that you feel better about yourself it's lovely yeah it's really a beautiful it's... physical manifestation of like kindness and doing good things for other people yep uh, does idea. it actually work it does the kids get really excited the first couple of weeks that i introduce it and it's normally in the beginning of the year uh-huh. and then there's this period where students there's always one in every class who pretty much just stands by the buckets and is just shouting out these empty compliments to people your hair looks nice exactly that is one of them i like your shoes and then he puts you know you put a palm home in their bucket and put one in yours i really like your hair today and put one in uh-huh. but pretty soon they figure out that that actually doesn't help you feel better right you don't really feel better about yourself when you're doing that um but because there's no prize or anything it's just a sticker stating that you filled up your bucket uh-huh. that that sort of evens itself out it wears off it wears off yeah so the kids really do and i tell them they don't have to raise their hand just get up and go if you shared a pencil or if you noticed something just get up and go put the palm poems do it quietly and come on back nice so and if somebody does something nice for you you could go up and do that too i do that yep. yeah i do that um the only thing you can't do is dip so uh-huh. even if a friend <laughs> made a poor choice we're not gonna go take out of their bucket it's just for positive uh-huh. ideas and thoughts it's a positive reinforcement system it is yeah you're the only bucket dipper in the classroom yeah i am but they don't see that so that's good yeah yeah that's the idea cool so obviously socialization and um redirecting of students mm-hmm. is a big important thing in first grade yeah. um, but academics is equally important it is uh some might say the most important thing in school and so um in first grade students really learn to read they do there's a tremendous emphasis on language acquisition um you're also helping students become numerate yep um, and those things are tremendously important but one of the areas that i know that you really excel is in teaching students science Uh, And one of the cool things I think about science is that it allows you to bring in some language acquisition, Mm -hmm. to bring in some reading and some writing, and also to bring in some practical application of math. Yep. Um, So let's jump in and talk a little bit about what science looks like in a first grade classroom. Well, I happen Uh to be married to a science teacher. Oh, are you? I am. Um, Who went through a transformation of his own teaching when you really took the project-based learning approach Mm -hmm. and I saw the change in the activities that you were having your students do Mm -hmm. and really having really doing inquiry based so having a problem sort of like a real world problem and then having kids learn the content but also to keep coming back to the problem so that they eventually can help solve it or whatever it is that you were having them do yeah a project-based approach so I think over the years My district also, we were, it was the first time that I've really gone through the process of creating thematic units. Uh You know, when I came out of credential school, it was still no child left behind. And it was very much, here's your curriculum, here's your book. And Uh then you start here at the beginning and you work your way through. And I know that we were talking about the pendulum swinging that the generation before teachers were creating their own units, these thematic units about oceans or rainforests and and giving their content Uh that way. 
So classic whales, butterflies units. Yes. Yep. I've taught the whales unit. I know you have. I know. Um, so my district was going through doing that thematic unit planning, but then incorporating more of our science standards uh-huh. in that way. So we were already working on creating units. And with your influence, I was able to try to make our units more project-based and inquiry-based. So presenting the kids with a problem and then letting them go out and try to figure it out. Uh-huh their first steps because oftentimes when you're presented with a problem you have no idea you don't know how to research it yet you haven't done the research and you've got these ideas Uh and letting them work through that process and letting them make mistakes and fail Mm -hmm. and then so showing them that you can go back and revise that you can research and revise as you go and the more information that you get you can keep revising whatever design that you had or solution that you had and let them really steer the course of the learning Mm -hmm. while I am in charge of introducing the content. And then at the end of our unit, they have a way to present whatever it is that they've learned. Yeah. So I I think you, you mentioned that I went through a similar transition. Yes. um, And I think it's tricky because on the one hand, what I've said that I believe about learning science Mm -hmm. has always been the same. Like I've always opened with like, you learn science by doing science, yes. not by reading about what other people uh-huh. did for science. Uh-huh. And that's always been my belief. But for the first like six or seven years of teaching, yeah. the way that I had kids doing science was by following the instructions that I gave them. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so we were like recreating other people's experiments, mm-hmm. but the kids weren't actually doing their own experimenting. It was like, here's how you should conduct this experiment. And now make sure that we conduct it right. And then did you find out the thing that you were supposed to find out? Uh-huh. Um, which, to be fair, at least they're doing something. Yes. Um, but... And they're learning something. And I, you know, have talked to a bunch of students who were my students in those first six years. And they seem like great people. Um, and I didn't totally ruin them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and some of them even like yes. science. So that's great. But, like, I've kind of shifted towards a students controlling the whole experimental process. Uh So students deciding, here's how we're going to set up this experiment. Here's what we're actually trying to figure out. It's around the general topic. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I want to make sure that we're studying waves. Mm -hmm. Um, Now you figure out what, how we're going to do that. Mm -hmm. Like, how are we actually going to investigate it? Yeah. And really throwing a lot of that mental burden to them so that they're doing a lot of the thinking. So on the first grade level... (laughs) what does that look like? Because like at the beginning of the year, a bunch of your kids can't read. No. How do you have them conducting science? What would a, what, what, can you give us an example of a science unit that you run through? Sure. And what does that look like? Like what's the standards that you're trying to hit? And then how do kids do that? Oi. Okay. Um, one, a unit that we have is called Patterns in the Sky. Okay. And students are, the general outcome in the standards is that students can recognize that there are patterns to what you see in the sky so that there are patterns in what you can see in the stars and constellations with what the sun is doing or Uh appears to be doing in the sky and what the moon appears to be doing. Okay. So the kids are really just trying to work through and figure out what are those patterns. Okay. So one of the things that we have that we introduce right off is we call them astronomers at school Mm -hmm. 
And I think the question that I present is something like, you know, the sun is over here in the morning and then it seems to be over here on the different part of the sky. And I really want to measure that. I have no idea where it's going to be. How do we measure that? And it's just really a, introducing the word measure right. and sun and sky. And the kids have so many. So the general piece is how do we figure out where the sun is? Yep. How do we figure out where it's going to be? Okay. Um, eventually we want to get them to recognizing that it appears to rise over here and move across the sky and sun, you know, set on a different part of the sky. Okay. And that that's not actually what happens. The sun isn't moving across, but that is a pattern that they, that is day after day. Yeah. You can predict that that will happen. Uh-huh. But for the first part, the kids are just, we're trying to figure out how do you measure it? If I, if you know that that's what's going to happen and uh-huh. the kids grab rulers books first they come in and they brainstorm ideas and then they go out and they're just me- so they come up with like a list of a ways list of things that they might want to measure yep where is the sun and they'll break up into teams okay and this is all in the first you know few minutes yeah. and then they go out and they just grab materials and go out and try- some kids are putting out a chair and trying to stand on top of the chair and hold a ruler uh-huh. and saying i'm pretty cl- i'm pretty close <laughs> and other kids closer than you used to be yes. And I have other students who are lining up uh, yardsticks across the span of the blacktop outside okay. my room. And uh, other students are measuring shadows. Okay. So we have all sorts That's of... getting different- closer. It, yes. Um, and eventually, they almost all get to the point where they're just sort of at a standstill. Uh-huh. And so we bring them back in and we talk about, what did you find out? And inevitably, they come to the conclusion that I wasn't measuring what I thought I was measuring. Mm-hmm. And you're like, right. You but know. while they were measuring, yes. they were doing some sneaky math. Mm-hmm. Like I'd assume that when they were measuring number of yardsticks, yep. they didn't figure out where the sun was. <laughs> no. But they did measure how long the, la- the blacktop is. Yes. And they might know that in the unit of number of yardsticks. Uh-huh. So like now it is... 58 yards long yep but at least they were doing some Mm -hmm. math measuring piece they were okay so um but you know eventually we we lead them to trying to track i think i use the words how do we track it and for that unit guiding them to take pictures or measure Uh shadows and that's kind of how we introduce the unit and then as the unit goes on we're tracking the length of shadows and the beginning of the day the middle of the day at the end of the day uh-huh. um, we mm, take pictures of the sun and its location in the sky one time each month for the remainder of the year okay. and graph that mm. so the kids can really see that during the winter months the sun appears to be lower in the sky mm-hmm. and you know we're reading books about what's actually happening there uh-huh. um, about seasons about different types of patterns that you would see in other constellations different constellations that you'll see at different seasons so they're just sort of diving in and really learning but there's something that you had said early on which was kids doing science Mm -hmm. was much more important at this level than the actual content Uh so they're going to repeat the same science standards again in third grade again Uh in fifth grade again in middle school and again in high school yeah so them understanding the specific words that i'm using or whether they retain that for the rest of the year is not my goal Uh uh-huh but having them try to problem solve uh-huh. and go out and figure out what it is and then come in and realize, no, I I have to regroup. Right. Maybe learn a little bit. We 
watch a video or we go to the planetarium or we read some books mm-hmm. and then they're incorporating that knowledge and then they go try it again. So just to, that you can revisit, that you can revise your uh-huh. plan and go out and try it again. And maybe this time it will be, you'll be a little bit closer to uh-huh. measuring where that the, the sun is. Yeah. And so they eventually get to a point where they're gathering some real data Yep. Um, based on pictures of the sun, based on certain fixed objects. Mm-hmm. Um in relation to that big tree that you can see on the hill yes. or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then they take that data, analyze the data. Yep. Uh, and then they're actually coming to conclusions based off the analysis of the data that they've gathered. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. So they're going through like a full scientific process and doing some background research throughout it mm-hmm. that brings in some read alouds and some books that they can read to themselves yep. um, and kind of pull all the literacy component the math the component math. Uh-huh. and the scientific process into one comprehensive unit which is a lot of work it is a lot of and work. a lot of planning yeah but the outcome is great because uh-huh. it, i mean the kids are using the vocabulary it's just a unit it, you know it's like surrounding them all day uh-huh. and they're able to really think and problem like marinate in it right and you know this read aloud is you know i've got some great read alouds about shadows or and just playful fun Mm -hmm. you know the kids don't really realize that i'm that we're talking about lengths of shadows or when do Uh shadows disappear um or where are they on a cloudy day yeah that kind of thing that they're thinking about and it's really adding to their picture of what are the patterns and what is happening nice and then at the end do they what do they do with that understanding so for that particular unit they've been taking data um all year long uh-huh so this is like a a few hours every month month okay yep um and for that particular unit they come up with a book um like a, a children's book that would tell a kindergartner uh-huh. what are the patterns in the sky so it's a public published book in our class oh um but it is not not like officially published but yeah, we yeah. go through the publishing process but yeah. each kid is res- and pair is responsible for a chapter uh-huh. what they call so we're bringing in some writers workshop with it and it just they they present it to the principal or nice. the kindergarten teachers i believe so okay. that they, they could teach a kindergartner nice about it and then that book ends up in your classroom library yep nice yeah it stays there so did the kids ever like accidentally find last year's book and are like oh wait we got it we figured it out, guys. Yeah. Well, sometimes. I mean, um, the kids at, at books that the kids make uh-huh. as a class end up being the favorite books in the classroom library and are therefore pre-destroyed by... Of, of the next. Oh. Yes. Of the kids who make the book. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Got it. They want to read it. Uh-huh. Uh, the next group loves it. So they're... they're so at- by the end of the school year, <laughs> the book that they made is pretty thrashed. It's pretty thrashed. Okay. Uh, but it just shows me that they've loved it. Right. Uh, that they've really took ownership of it. Yeah, that's kind of best case scenario. Yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the point. Yeah, they're owning <laughs> the learning and they want to read about their own learning some yes. more. That's great. Yeah, sweet. Okay, so the last thing that I wanted to kind of talk about is uh, you mentioned earlier that you are in a job share. Yes, I am. Um, so, what are the logistics of that? <laughs> um, well, I'm in a fifty percent job share. Okay, which means that I. I do share my load 50% with my partner. Uh-huh. The way that that looks for parents and kids is I am in the classroom Monday, Tuesday, and every other Wednesday. Uh-huh. 
and my partner Heather is there every other Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Yep. And we will split uh, duties like what we need to be doing for our school site or the district, staff meetings, uh-huh. um, holidays, conferences. We're splitting everything pretty much 50 50 uh-huh. as best we can. Yeah. What that means for us work wise is yeah. that we are spending, you know, it's like 75, 80% of our time. You know, you get paid for 50%. That's when I'm there, but right. it ends up being really long hours. Uh-huh prepping at home, lots of communication Mm -hmm. to each other to make sure that we're on the same page, not only for curriculum, but also for what our students were feeling and and doing at the beginning of the week. I've got to communicate that with Heather so that she can walk in on her day and know what conflicts happen so she can run her meeting circle. So there's there's a ton. Yeah. (laughs) Communication. Yeah. I'd say like you were technically 50%, Yes, but I have noticed (laughs) Um, that on the days that you're working, you're going in at 6 a.m. Yep. Uh, and coming home at maybe 6 p.m. Yep. Um, so yeah, those are long days. Uh, the great part, and and then you do that on Mondays, Tuesdays, and every other Wednesday. Uh So I'd say you're probably working, I don't know, 30 ish hours a week. Mm -hmm. Um, which would put you at 75%. Yeah. 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 Um, but the great part for our family is that that means Thursday, Friday, and every other Wednesday, <laughs> yeah. you're not working. I'm not. I'm so home. Mondays and Tuesdays are kind of rough for me because <laughs> yeah. I do drop off and pick up um, and the general parent management stuff. Um, but then Thursdays and Fridays, I can just go to work and stay at work. Yes. Uh, I mean, I come home. Well, those are your uh, days. Eventually, right? But those are my days that I can stay a little bit later and get stuff done um, and kind of like get my planning piece completed. Uh, done um so logistically uh how do you manage working with somebody else and like finding that balance between your styles but keeping it a cohesive classroom for the students and the parents well it's it's a lot of work it's uh-huh. a lot of planning time we're meeting together outside of school so that we can make the transitions um as smooth as possible uh-huh. there's a lot of prep work i would say this summer for over the summer just uh-huh. establishing our routines communicating that hey i introduced this rule uh-huh. and this way of doing it so you might want to do it mm-hmm. and then establishing for kids and parents that we are different people yep and we try to keep everything the same and the kids will let you know when you're not doing it correctly <laughs> <laughs> um that's not the way that so-and-so does it is something yeah, that you yeah. get a lot. Yeah. Um, but, you know, for a lot of kids who have multiple adults that are in charge of uh-huh. them, you know, you have to navigate different adults and their different styles. Yep. So for kids who happen to have two parents yep. in the household, I mean, there's always this is the... not a shock. It, yeah, it's not. It's I think it's hard in the beginning, uh-huh. mostly because they can't get our names right and yep. they're not sure what's going on and who's there. But I, I think it's probably more difficult for the parents to wrap their head around uh-huh. because they're not used to having two adults, you know, uh-huh. having to navigate their, your two parents right. or two adults or, or a single adult and it's a child care provider or right. whatever it is. But it generally works. Yeah, We have different styles. We run our classroom meetings slightly differently, but uh-huh. really try to do it as much the same as we possibly can. Right. And you've got certain pieces that are cohesive through all of it. So like you may have slightly different styles in how you run the classroom meetings, but yes. you both have classroom meetings. Yes. 
and you both do the bucket filling thing. Yes. And you both have the same classroom rules and expectations. Yes. Um, and so while there'd be like normal personality variances, uh-huh. you've preset all of your agreements on like, okay, this is how we'll do everything. Yeah. And that's something that you've chosen, right? Job sharing <laughs> is has been a, a choice. It is a choice. I've had many parents ask me if maybe it was a punishment or I wasn't really <laughs> qualified to, to be a full-time teacher. Yeah, you couldn't cut it <laughs> going 100%. It. Um, so it is, it's a choice that our, we've made, that uh-huh. I've made and our family has made so right. that I could be home and I can volunteer in my kids' classes and, uh-huh. and I have time to do laundry and cleaning and all the other things and to just be here and to have calm mornings on the day that you go to work uh-huh. we get to walk to school mm-hmm. um i get to spend time at home with our two-year-old yep. so I've, ch- I've chosen it i really like it with all the extra work and extra communicating and texting uh-huh. and phone calls it's worth it for us right in this moment in time yeah yeah um and eventually you'll probably go back to full time again yep. once the kids are a little bit older yeah um but it's kind of an awesome opportunity to be able to be great in both areas. <laughs> like to be able to like be a great parent and also a great teacher and yeah. to feel like you have a foot in both of those worlds. Yes. To try to find the balance. Right. right. And I think that's the tough thing, right? Is that a lot of times teachers feel like they have to make a choice. Yeah. Like, well, I got young kids, mm-hmm. so I need to stay at home with my kids. Yep. And then you lose a lot of really good teachers. Yes, you do. Um, and once they get out of the classroom, it can be really tough to come back into the classroom. Like once that habit is established, like if you are working full time, then you're working all the way through mm-hmm. and that's like a thing, but then you feel like you're missing out on something with your own kids. And then once you get out of the classroom, it's like, oh, well, I, I used to be a teacher. <laughs> I was a teacher for eight years or 10 years or whatever. Yeah. And then eventually maybe I'll go back. And for some people, they absolutely do. Mm-hmm. And for other people, that maybe turns into a like, ah, that's a thing I used to do. Yeah. Well, especially now because things are changing so quickly. Uh-huh. New curriculums, new standards, new approaches. Right. So it can feel really difficult to yeah. try to catch up. Right. Like the classroom's a totally different place yeah. than 10 years ago. Yes. The Literally every single standard has changed. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean they're still reading and math but the phrasing of it and the pedagogy around how it's being taught um has definitely modified and if you haven't been there for those in-between pieces it can be tough to just jump back in and catch right back up to be brand new again cool um so job sharing worth it yes for sure good i don't know is it for you yeah okay yeah it's great great for me (laughs) but i'm not there doing the actual work no it's good it's a lot of work it's a lot of hard work but Uh it's good I, i I hope to continue Good for at least a few more years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lovely. With that, Melissa Williams, thank you so much for coming on Teach Em Up. Thank you for having me. Always. <laughs>